So I'm, I'm pleased this morning to, to talk about inquiry, uh, which is to continue what we've just been doing in many ways, uh, a, a certain kind of inquiry. And uh, inquiry is, in the context of our practice, is the use of the mind to go more deeply. It's the use of the mind in the context of our minds being generally quiet. It's the use of the mind to go more deeply, to penetrate into aspects of our experience, aspects of our being, which are not so obvious, which are sometimes a little beneath the threshold of consciousness. And there's this tremendous power that questions can have, I think as we know, to take us more deeply into our experience. Inquiry can give a a tremendous uh, energy to our practice. Um, I don't know about you, but sometimes when I'm meditating, or maybe just in my life, I'm just sitting there and it's kind of... Think about this, think about that. that, Does that resonate with anyone? (laughs) And... And inquiry can give a certain sharpness where it's just to ask like the question that we asked as the first inquiry practice, what's happening? Can say, oh, well, I have to answer that question, so I have to look a little bit. And it takes us, sometimes can take us out of, did you feel that? It can take us out of our little bit of our, um, I don't know, semi-trance-like state and can really uh, help us to be aware. And so it's this... Uh, quality of our attention, which I want to explore. And I want to first talk about some general qualities of inquiry and then talk about, uh, if I have time, to talk about five specific methods of inquiry of which I, um, we did the first three. So I want to talk in more detail about those three methods of inquiry which we did and then talk about ad- some additional ones. So that's my um, intention for, for the talk. And um, I really love the theme of inquiry And it's something that's often not really uh, developed so much in our practice. I think it's partly because our culture is so mental. And for many of us, the real task of our meditation, or the initial task, I should say, of our meditation, is just to get a little bit of quiet in the mind. You know, our minds get so active, we're thinking about everything, we're, you know, just all over the place, we're overstimulated generally in this culture. And a lot of the emphasis on meditation can just be to have a little bit of quieting down, to be able to see our patterns a little more clearly, to, to um, work with this very uh, noisy mind, you know, to work with the mind that is just uh, caught up in repetitive patterns, you know, the, the mind that the great... Thai teacher, uh, Buddha Dasa said, when asked about Western civilization, he said, lost in thought. You know, and a lot of times when we start meditation, our aim, or what really makes sense, is just to have enough mindfulness so we start seeing into our patterns more clearly, start identifying the patterns, and there's a kind of quieting down which can occur. And I think we all know this to some extent, and it's one maybe one reason why we keep on meditating because we know that the practice of mindfulness starts giving us space around our repetitive patterns or repetitive thought patterns. So just by the fact of saying thinking or remembering or planning or fantasizing, it stops being quite so solid. And I use the metaphor of space, that it sort of knocks a little hole 
in the solidity of our, of our thoughts. And so I think for many people, the idea of using the mind in a more active way as we do an inquiry, people say, well, let's, we can't encourage that overly mental culture. And so I think people have shied away a little bit from inquiry in a way just because we, we are so aware that for many, even probably most of us, it's a very important aim in practice to, to become more quiet. But one of the uh, wonders of inquiry is that for those of us who have active minds, and how many people here would say that your mind is pretty active? <laughs> okay, I, don't, I won't look carefully, but it seemed like most people. <laughs> and one of the glories of inquiry is that with inquiry, when there's some degree of quiet in the mind, and quiet in the mind to some extent is really necessary to do particularly some of the uh, further forms of inquiry, particularly the second and third ones that I mentioned, but when there's some quiet in the mind, then that which previously seemed a bit like a curse, that is, oh, my mind is so active, it's just, uh, it just goes on forever, what am I going to, uh, 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 can't I trade it in, you know, <laughs> get another mind, and um, when our mind gets quiet, the quality of that active mind can become something that actually becomes an advantage. That's what's really promising. We can actually use that, that um, active mind to really say, okay, what's happening? Let me look, or let me look and really see what's there. Because inquiry is really about the quality of learning, and it taps into our love of learning. It taps into our wanting to know, wanting to go deeply, not wanting to stay on the surface of things. It taps into our um, sense sometimes of wonder, of, you know, what is this? What is this mind? What's really going on? Now, inquiry, I think, is actually more emphasized in the Buddhist tradition, in its um, Asian form, than I think it, it is here actually, in like at Spirit Rock. I think, again, it might be partly a skillful means that people say, we can't talk about inquiry too much because people's minds are too noisy. But um, in the teachings of the Buddha, inquiry was quite emphasized. Some of you know that there's, uh, right at the heart of the teachings, there's an invocation to a kind of inquiry which in its most uh, famous form was articulated when the Buddha visited a village, uh, which was the village of the Kalamas. And some of you may know this uh, wonderful story. Apparently the Kalamas in India, there was a village, and they lived at a kind of crossroads. Uh, And there were, I don't know if there were trade routes, but what it meant was that a lot of people came through. And in particular, a lot of spiritual teachers came through. They were getting visiting spiritual teachers all the time, coming from all directions, And they had, um, of course, different views, different practices, different people said, well, this is reality, no, this is reality, no, this is the most important spiritual thing, this is, you know, it was probably somewhat like the Bay Area. (laughs) You see, just look out there on the, you know, the the bulletin board for Spirit Rock and you see, you know, you can do, you know, a hundred different spiritual pursuits, you know, and... And, and probably if you actually went to all of them, your, your head might be spinning a little bit, right? Because you know, one person says to meditate, another person says, you know, meditation is just getting caught in fixated religious behavior. 
you know, and <laughs> you have opposite people saying different things, and some say the reality is God, and some say the reality is emptiness, and some say the reality is goddess, and, you know, what should I believe? And this is where the Kalamas were. Their heads were spinning. They were having spiritual teachers coming right and left, and they didn't really know what to think. And then, of course, then another teacher comes through, happens to be the Buddha. And so they basically tell him their dilemma. You know, we don't know what to believe. There are all these teachers, all these views. What should we do? And here's, here's what the Buddha said. Um, yes, Kalamas, it is proper that you have doubt, that you have perplexity, for doubt has arisen in a matter which is doubtful. It's pretty direct there, right? He said, now look, you Kalamas, <laughs> he said, do not be led by reports or tradition or hearsay. 2,500 years ago, someone's saying, don't just believe something because of tradition. Not so common even now, right? Be not led by the authority of religious text, he says, nor by mere logic or inference, nor by considering appearances, nor by the delight in speculative opinions, nor by seeming possibilities, nor by the idea, this is our teacher. So, that means you shouldn't necessarily believe what I'm saying. Okay. But, O Kalamas, when you know for yourselves that certain things are unwholesome and wrong and bad, then give them up. And when you know for yourselves that certain things are wholesome and good, then accept them and follow them. 2,500 years ago, someone basically saying, look deeply into your experience and don't even believe the text, the teacher, the tradition, the religious authority, but look deeply. And I think this is probably why many of us are here, right? Because there's something which really rings true to us, that, that deep wish to look into our experience and not to have our deepest uh, commitments come from some kind of external uh, belief or some kind of external commitment. And this is, this is really an invocation to inquiry, isn't it? It's really an invocation to look deeply for yourself and come to know. And as the Buddha developed further his teachings, this quality of inquiry, of looking deeply for oneself, became uh, very significant. And in fact, one of my favorite teachings that you may know is the teaching called the Seven Factors of Awakening which are the qualities of an awakened mind and heart. And it's, it's a wonderful teaching. It's, 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 it identifies seven qualities, uh, one of which is mindfulness, which is taken to be a stabilizing quality, and then identifies three activating qualities and three, um, three, three kind of, um, I don't know, activating sort of receptive, more receptive qualities. And the activating qualities include um, effort or energy. It includes uh, rapture or joy. So as we practice, we get more rapture. Just everyone, people know that, but it's good to remind us. That's one of the reasons to practice, maybe. And, and then uh, the third is inquiry. Inquiry is this force in our experience which, which uh, energizes us which can really give tremendous energy for practice. And then the three qualities of, uh, that were more uh, receptive include tranquility, uh, concentration, and equanimity. 
And these are the qualities of an awakened mind. And inquiry is one of those. This looking more deeply to really um, see more clearly. Now I want to talk about the different forms of inquiry and really start with the, the most basic one. Uh, the first one that we did in the guided meditation was this uh, quality of just asking what's happening. And I think this is the most basic thing. And did you feel how just asking what's happening gives you a little energy in the practice? That, and this is something you can do in your formal practice. You can do it in everyday life. You can just go around all during the day just saying, what's happening? <laughs> you, know, you can wear a t-shirt that says, what's happening? <laughs> you know, and you can, it's really, it's really wonderful, you know, put it on your hand, what's happening? <laughs> and it's this, um, it's really just, it, it's an or your version of that. It's whatever, it's what takes us back into the present moment and let us, lets us be clear as to what's going on. And it's, it's a very, very basic practice. And yet it's one which, in a way, is inviting us to summon energy to break through our habitual thoughts and patterns. And it's, it's a very beautiful one. It's really the essence of mindfulness is asking in every moment what's happening and trying to be clear and trying to find that energy because sometimes, especially during the day, probably we're pretty good in meditation, maybe most of us, but during the day, do you ever find that you just don't want to be mindful? You know, that you're, that you're saying, you know, oh, you know just, let's just cruise, you know. And, and, and the, asking this question is like a little bit of knocking on the door to say, wake up a little bit, wake up, and just ask this question. So this is the practice you can do. You can actually keep asking uh, what's happening. And it's kind of a, it, the, this is really a, a starting inquiry practice. It's really to say what's happening and then to kind of listen and see what's there. And you can use the, the naming or the noting just to say, oh, I'm caught in thought, or oh, there's planning going on. And to feel it a little bit in the mind and body and heart. To name it and then just kind of be with what's present. Be with the, the state of mind. And it's a wonderful, simple practice that we can do a lot And if, if this resonates with you. Now the second kind of inquiry is goes a little more deeply. And it's, it's based on the ability to simply note what's happening. So in a way, each of these forms of inquiry presuppose the earlier ones. We need to have that initial ability to note, to see what's there. And then if that's present, we can start to actually look into the uh, states of mind and the states of heart that are there. And the second kind of inquiry is like when we, and it's particularly effective in meditation, but when we practice in meditation, we can bring it out into everyday life. It would be to look at a particular state of mind. You know, let's suppose I get angry at something um, from a, a relationship or something that happened or something I read in the newspaper, and I feel anger. The inquiry practice is to actually start to say, okay, what's going on right now? And it's to feel, okay, what is, anger is occurring, and what happens when we typically are angry? We usually get caught in our rationale, our storyline, and we just stay there, more or less, you know. know, More or less with us as the aggrieved party, clearly right, and the other party is clearly wrong and possibly in in need of punishment. (laughs) 
And it, it plays out fairly uniformly in that way. And, and so when we do inquiry, we actually look at a little more deeply. If we feel anger, we say, okay, I really want to see what anger is about. We may never have actually looked carefully at anger. I know before I started meditating, I had been angry a lot, but I never really had looked carefully and said, what is anger? What is it about? What's my anger like? What are the thought patterns that are there? What's present in the body? What's my energy like in the heart? Yeah, there are a lot of answers to the question. (laughs) Yeah, we can, but we can, it's really to look for ourselves and see what's there. And it's to say, I want to inquire into the nature of anger. I want to see what's there. And so it's a kind of a shift away from being, we would say, quite so identified with the anger. So again, it's creating more space. When we're really angry, it's like, like I said, with the story, there's the anger, with the storyline, I'm right, you're wrong. Uh, and it's like we're totally locked into that, right? When we start doing inquiry, it creates a little bigger space, and we can actually look clearly, feel clearly in our bodies, and say, what is this anger? And one of the glories of the meditation is that in many ways, when, especially when we do this practice over time, we do a kind of uh, inquiry into the core emotions and thought patterns that we have. Partly, some of them are idiosyncratic to us, but a lot of them are pretty universal. And we start really exploring in depth what these, uh, what these uh, states are like, what, these, uh, what anger is like. And I know for myself, in my own experience, uh, for example, of meditating, especially doing retreats, sometimes, I will, and quite often, I would have retreats where a predominant thought pattern or emotion was there a lot of the time. And it almost was like that particular retreat or that particular period of time when I used inquiry, it was like I was studying the emotion or the state of mind for a sustained time. One retreat, uh, one retreat I was uh, angry for um, 18 hours a day, 10 days in a row. Luckily, I wasn't talking to anyone. But, but I, was, uh, I was angry like that. I won't go into the content area. <laughs> but um, luckily, I was working with a teacher. I was actually working with uh, Jack Kornfield at the time. And he really instructed me to do this kind of inquiry, where I just really studied the anger. In fact, I, at the end of every sitting, at the end of every walking, I wrote a few notes about what was happening in that particular sitting about the, with the anger. And after about four or five days, I went back and looked at the notes. I produced this elaborate flowchart of my own anger, which was amazing because I had never looked at anger with that level of depth. I found that there were actually many, many forms of anger. There wasn't just one. I felt what it was like in the body. If there was anger that was really petty and reactive, there was anger that came out of uh, a kind of, uh, that was really came out of a certain sadness, I could trace, when I went and looked at my anger, I could see how some of my anger came out of love and care. Sometimes my anger was um, more personal and petty. Sometimes it was as if I was an Old Testament prophet, or so I thought. Uh, you know, and I was, um, I was feeling my anger as identified with a kind of cosmic force, like, you don't know what you're doing, but in the end, you'll see. 
something. Of course, there's plenty of room for self-delusion here, but but uh, uh, but there were. But it was it was an amazing. Anger was never the same. Look at anger like that for ten days. It's never the same. And in my own experience, a lot of the retreats have been like that. One retreat I remember, I looked at fear like that. Not not quite in the same intensity, but there was a tremendous amount of fear. Another uh, for a long retreat, uh, I looked at judgment in the mind. I looked at. I tried to study the quality of, of particularly negative self-judgments and sometimes judgments of others and just studied it and tried to inquire, okay, when this happens, what's it like in the body? What's it like in the mind? What's in my heart? And just try to inquire. And it, it, it uh, becomes magical because it's as if my experience was, it was when I've done that, it was as if I had never really done it before. And it, it, the, um, it for me, it brought up this tremendous love of the process of learning because it felt like, it felt like uh, I was able to cut through a lot and really learn and see things. And it came by really saying, okay, let me really deeply inquire. You know, and I, I remember one of the first times, it was just about a year or two into first doing retreats, and I was at a, a retreat where um, I was doing walking meditation at one moment, and for some reason, I started feeling afraid of the uh, of one or two people who were right next to me, and I had no understanding why, but it was sort of strange. And I um, something in me spontaneously, no one had ever taught me this, but I just uh, I stopped the walking and said, I just asked myself a question: Why am I afraid? It's kind of an inquiry. You know, why am I afraid? And I almost listened. I listened quietly for some voice that would respond. Just to, to, and I just wanted to know. And out of that, there came a voice that told me why I was afraid. And it was, it was. I had never really experienced that kind of voice before. I think it was the almost like personally, it was like the birth of what the Quakers call the still small voice. You know that I I tended to over time call it my no bullshit voice. You know that I could access, and I t- started to use it. You know, at times like if I was in interpersonal conflict or something, and something wasn't feeling right, I would say, "Okay, what's really happening?" And I would inquire and try to look more deeply. And it wasn't a hundred percent accurate, but it was getting, it was pretty close to it. You know, it would really, I would, it would, I would really listen, say, "What's there? What's really present?" And it's, that's the quality of inquiry. The third form of inquiry that I talked about is uh, one that I was initially taught by John Travis, which is we sometimes call it the dropping down practice. And how many people have learned something like that, where you take a repetitive pattern and you try to listen in your heart for what's happening? How many people have done something like that? It's a very, very powerful practice. It's, uh, and it's a kind of inquiry where you start with a repetitive pattern. And as I said, it takes a lot of quiet in the mind to do this because inquiry is not a figuring out. Inquiry is not an intellectualization or analysis. And this is a very important point in inquiry. And if the mind is active and trying to figure out, it's better to go back to one of the first kind of inquiry practices because it's not about figuring out. It's something that one can use the mind when the mind is quiet. And that's, that's, I think that's very important to remember. But uh, I learned this practice with John, uh, and he particularly guided me to work with it 
in terms of um, self-judgments and actually different kinds of judgments. And what I would do with this practice was whenever I noticed a judgment occurring, he said, just listen to the judgment, let it play itself out, and then go and listen in your heart, being with your body and listen in your heart as to what was there. And I did this first in a two-month retreat where I did it um, like that probably, well, many, many, many times a day. I also would take time where I deliberately invited judgments that had been around to, to come present, let them play themselves out, and then went and listened in the heart. And I did, so I did that practice probably 15, 20, 30 times a day for 60 days, you know, sometimes for 10 minutes at a time. And it was, again, over that time I came to see judgments like I'd never seen them because what I found was that as I went uh, deeper, I came to find that with every judgment, when I really listened, there was basically some unacknowledged uh, pain that was actually driving, you might say, the judgment that I was not aware of, that the judgments were just kind of presenting themselves as if I was right, something else was wrong, end of story. But in actuality, there was almost like semi-unconscious material that was rooted in pain that I could not really access that was driving the judgments. You know, I mean, it whether it's something, some very difficult area or whether it's just a very simple thing like, you know, like um, maybe you were driving here and you were a little bit in a hurry and you were behind a slow driver. And your judgment, what does your judgment say? Slow driver, bad. <laughs> hurry up, <laughs> right? Me, good, in a hurry, <laughs> whatever. Something very primitive like that. And when you actually do this uh, drop-down practice, you can do this when you, when you leave here and you're driving. And you say, you notice a judgment forming. And you just drop down and you actually notice, oh, there's some pain there connected with maybe some impatience. You know, there's kind of a small little pain there. And that's driving the judgment, right? And we don't typically even, we're not in touch with that. And so this third form of practice is this wonderful practice where we can actually touch into what's beneath consciousness. So the inquiry has an amazing power because it's just asking what's there, listening, and sometimes things which are beneath the threshold of consciousness start coming to the surface when we do that kind of inquiry. So I want to mention just uh, near the end uh, two other forms of inquiry more briefly, and I think I may, I may continue with this subject maybe on the next time I come you know, to work with inquiry, because I, I love this topic. It's really rich, and you can tell that's been important for my own personal practice. But I want to mention two other forms. And one of them is another kind of inquiry, which is using a spiritual teaching as a kind of framework for asking questions. And this is very similar. If you know the four foundations of mindfulness, it's very similar to the fourth foundation of mindfulness in which the Buddha uses particular teachings to develop mindfulness. And to give an example... I might use the teaching of the Four Noble Truths, the, Buddha, the teaching of the Buddha that says that there is suffering, there is a core cause to suffering which is in some kind of compulsive grasping or pushing away, that that's what's at the root of our suffering, that with some deep resistance to, um, to experience as it is. Thirdly, that it's possible to release that deep uh, grasping or aversion and come to a kind of peace. And the fourth truth being 
the way to the, the tools, the perspectives, what helps us to come to that peace. And so in this uh, fourth kind of inquiry, we can use the, uh, that kind of teaching as a guide for us. We can, we can look into our experience and take, for example, a moment of suffering. Okay, I notice I'm suffering. And then I can ask, first I can say, okay, what's, what's the suffering like? Let me try to feel it. What's going on? And then we can use a question and say, that can ask, that we can ask, there's suffering, is there grasping, is there some kind of strong compulsive grasping or aversion? And we can kind of ask that question and listen for an answer. And, you know, and there's a, this is a practice that I did near the beginning of my practice that I was given by Joseph Goldstein. He gave me the practice, if there's suffering, where's the grasping? And he asked me to look for it. You know, every time suffering, I got really excited. Every time I suffered, I would get so happy. <laughs> in a way. I may, be, I may be exaggerating in hindsight, but uh, you know what I mean, because there was, cause there was some, some interest in learning, right? That, that does bring happiness. And I took these moments of suffering, and I would ask that question, and where is, there, where is there some grasping? And then we could ask the further question, okay, I kind of feel the grasping. You know, maybe... I'm, um, um, I really wanted something to happen. It didn't happen, right? Or let's say, I really wanted, my, I really wanted to have dinner with my friend. My friend um, canceled on me, and I'm kind of angry and upset. That's the suffering. And then I can say, okay, is there grasping? I had to have that meal with my friend. You know, and we can be in touch with that grasping. And there could be some, a lot of positive reasons to do it as well, but there, the suffering is going to come about because there's some kind of very strong, almost unconscious grasping or aversion. And then we can say, is it possible, following the third truth, to release that a little bit, to release that grasping? Do I, can, can I feel my totally wanting this absolutely to happen? And can I let go of that some? And that's the third truth. And I can look at that in my experience in the moment. And then I can ask, okay, what helps me to release that. doesn't mean I don't, if my friend was irresponsible, it doesn't mean I don't talk with my friend and say, when you did that, I was a little upset. You know, it doesn't mean we don't act in the world. Uh, but we do, can do, do this inner inquiry that uses the model of the four truths. And so this is really a fourth kind of inquiry. It's using a teaching as a way to really actively ask questions. And then the, the last one I want to mention is a quality of... Um, Asking deep, radical questions. And this is actually something that Christopher Titmus, who's up on the hill, some of you may have worked with him, he's, he was a main teacher for me, and he taught that kind of inquiry in a beautiful way. This is the, where we actually may sit, and this demands a lot of quiet of mind to do, but we may sit and we may ask, as in the Hindu tradition with Ramana Maharshi, one sits and asks, who am I? And you just ask that continually. When I worked with Christopher, for 10 days once, I just asked the question, how am I free? How am I not free? And I kept on asking that question periodically, maybe every two or three minutes, maybe 16 or 18 hours a day for 10 days. This is a very, this is a very intense form of inquiry. And it was not like I was trying to figure it out, but I would sort of listen for a response. 
Now maybe I can, uh, there's, there's actually a story connected with that. I'll tell that next time because I want to have some time for discussion. But it's a very, very powerful inquiry. This is sometimes used in Zen practice. In one form of Zen practice that's taught in Korea, one could do a 90-day retreat and just keep asking, what is this? What is this? And you just listen for a response, and it's... Your laughter may indicate why you're not Zen students. <laughs> uh, I don't know. But it's, 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 a, it's a very powerful form of inquiry. I don't, some of you, I'm sure, have done something like this, but it's a, it's a use of this questioning to plumb some of the depths of our experience. And I think I'll go, more into, I'll go into more depth on this kind of technique next time, because I want to maybe focus more on the first three uh, here. Uh, but let me just end by saying that um, I think it's wonderful that this problem that we sometimes think we have, that our minds are active, can at a certain level in our practice, when the mind has achieved some quiet, and that is important, it can actually be this tremendous aid for deepening. It can d- develop this incredible interest, love of learning, and almost like a kind of opening to the mystery of being a human being and the mystery of learning and using questions to take us more deeply. And so it can become this wonderful adjunct to practice that kind of, uh, as we know, can kind of shake us a little bit out of our, uh, what, uh, doldrums and just uh, taking things for granted and can use the power of a, of a question, of using language in the context of a silent mind to help us uh, awaken and learn and, and, really, and I think it's really to go back almost to the, uh, you know, that quality of wonder and love of learning that we had when we were children. It's really to reconnect with that. Just this, you know, to see ourselves most basically as these learning beings. You know, we have all these tasks in life, but most basically aren't we just learning beings? Beings who love to learn, who want to learn, and in learning become free. And that's, I think, what the core of inquiry is about. So... I'll stop there. Thank you. It's really a, I don't know, a testament to the glories of inquiry. Yes. Um, but, but one other uh, piece that I just want to highlight in what you said that I think is really crucial is there's something about how once we've done some deep inquiry like you did, um, in some ways things are never the same again. Yeah. Right? Because... Once we've taken something really, really difficult and worked with inquiry, maybe there's some other tools we use as well as inquiry, right? But once we've used inquiry in that way, the next time something difficult comes around, even if we're a little lost, we have that history, right? And we have that knowledge, oh, yeah, I can go into this. It's not totally fun, but I can can do it. And it's really, that's really crucial. You know, like we go into, so it's, it, and, and then we start, then um, inquiry becomes contagious. <laughs> no, it's, and then we all have some version of that, don't we? And so how yeah. do I, what type of inquiry do I do when it's that suffering because you, you feel that, that there's no answer? Yeah. You know? Th- thank you, Mona. It's a, it's a good question. And, um, in some ways, we, um, the teachings of the Buddha in some ways point to a distinction between pain and suffering. And there's, there's, a, there's a teaching 
which uh, is one of my favorites, and so I, I've, I've used it here before, is the teaching of the two arrows. And that's a teaching that we're all, to some extent, shot with an arrow. We all have a certain... And basically, that per, we're shot with an arrow. It's called the first arrow. That's the arrow of pain. That, that we all have a certain degree of pain in our lives. It comes, obviously, with the territory of being human. We all have certain losses. We all have certain... Um, Difficult things that happen. Everyone has that, you know, and it's some more or less, and it's, of course, it's different for different people, but there's, there's necessarily pain. The purpose of practice is not to get rid of the pain. Uh, the Buddha had pain. You know, the Buddha, um, in the story that Gil Fronstel first told to me, and I, I'd like to repeat it as much as possible, the Buddha had a bad back later in his life. You know, and he would often... Um, uh, be unable to give, not often, but sometimes would be unable to give a Dharma talk because his back was hurting. And it really, it's a, I'm, I'm just so um, grateful that that didn't get censored out or something because it really points to how there is pain. And the you know, when you're supposedly a fully enlightened being, it's not like you're rid of pain. But the Buddha said, we all have a certain amount of pain. What we tend to do because of the first arrow we tend to shoot a second arrow at ourselves or we might say at others. Because of the pain that I have, I uh, react to the pain, I clench around the pain, I blame others for the pain, I blame myself for the pain, I act it out in relation to certain people. That's the second arrow and that's actually what the Buddha called suffering. So if we take the first arrow as pain and the second arrow as suffering, and it's a certain degree of precision of definitions, The Buddha said that we don't try to necessarily get rid of pain. We can get rid or we can transform suffering. And so in your case, it wouldn't be to want to get rid of pain, but you could look at where do I blame myself? Where is it possible for me as much as possible to relax around the pain physically as well as emotionally and mentally? And looking at where where that's hard would be looking at where there's grasping. You know, and that's, that's, this is not easy work. It's hard for all of us, but that would be to work with the second arrow. And the first arrow, and again, it's very much like this fact I like to mention, that I've been told by doctors that about, 20, about 80% of what patients experience as um, pain is actually not the original stimulus, but the reaction to the pain. And that's where we can actually do some work. And again, not easy necessarily in, in your situation, or probably we each have a counterpart of that, whether it's physical or emotional, but that's where the, that's where the work is done. Yeah. And thank you. And the inquiry, I guess, would be seeing, okay, where am I shooting that second arrow? Where is that occurring? You know, and we could say, where is it occurring physically? Are there ways I can, where is it occurring emotionally? Or more mentally. Thank you. Um, it's, it's a great question. Um, how many people here experience some resistance to inquiry? <laughs> okay. um, it's a great question because, um, yeah, that resistance is completely uh, normal uh, in the sense that it's it's just there. And it's... Um, it's wonderful 
if we can actually sit sometimes. You, you might sit down and you might be sitting, near, particularly near the beginning of the sitting, and you might feel yourself just saying, I can't sit, I have to get up, right? <laughs> you know, and you can feel, sometimes it's very, uh, right, just completely embodied, right? Your body is just, Lift. How many people experience something like that? Right, it just lifts you up. Right? You're saying, "No, stay." Um, and I think it's very—it's a very skillful form of inquiry to say, "Okay, what is this about? What is this resistance?" And it, I think it's skillful to say, "I make a total commitment to stay here, whatever, for 20 minutes or 30 minutes, even if there's that resistance." And it takes a certain amount of intention and energy, but I, I do that uh, sometimes myself. And I think it's, it's, very, uh, it's very helpful to just set that intention and then and know that, because it's, I think we have to, we, many of us know this, but it's important to remember that the purpose of sitting is to give a time in which we pay as best attention as we can. The aim of sitting is not to have wonderful states of mind. We don't really believe that. We think the aim of sitting is to have wonderful states of mind. <laughs> Sorry, it's not, we, don't, we don't put that you know, right out there in the advertising for Spirit Rock, but the aim of sitting is really to be, is to practice being as present as we can in wh- whatever's happening. And so the commitment to actually to sit with that is very important. And we, and we constantly think, oh, I'm really, I'm more committed to having wonderful states than to actually just being present. And so uh, actually taking that as a discipline and then saying, okay, I feel resistance. What is this about? What's going on? Is very, very skillful. And it's it's a wonderful uh, practice just to commit to because, uh, and sometimes, uh, yeah, do that at home. And sometimes we can, you know, it's, it's nice to do that when we, you know, it's nice to have some support for when we're experiencing the resistance, you know, whether it's in a group. But maybe for some of us, when we sit in a group, the resistance isn't there at all in the same way, right? That may be the experience for some people, but it's more there when I'm maybe on my own or just sitting. And so then make a vow just to study the resistance. What's it about? What I find is that when I'm actually willing to stay with the resistance often it leaves very quickly. Sometimes it does. It's like there's, a, there's this interesting fact of our, the way our minds work that it's, if you want to call the resistance, uh, use a metaphor, like call this one of our little demons or something. It's like when you're ready to look the demons in the eye, they tend to disappear. It's an interesting fact that, about resistance that when you're actually willing to do that, when you're really willing to look fear really directly, it's like, it kind of shrivels up somewhat. Now, I'm not saying immediately. (laughs) But it's a very interesting fact of practice that the fact of being willing to look at something and having the discipline to do that is a very powerful force. Because most of what is in the resistance is some kind of fear of experiencing something. When we're actually willing to be with uh, the resistance or fear, it's surprising how quickly it says, okay, you win. I mean, quickly meaning looking at it, you know, a thousand times. 
but that's relatively quick, you know. And that's uh, so it's it's kind of magical that way. So maybe I'll we're at we're at time, so I think I'm going to uh, end, and we can can I, I'll. Would you like to continue with inquiry when I come again? Mm-hmm. We can do the theme. So I would invite you, and I'll, I'll just do a, about a 30-second or a one-minute closing. I would invite you to, if it feels right for you, to start bringing some of these forms of inquiry into your own practice. And, and I gave three forms and mentioned some others. And, the, you know, and they should be applicable to people, whatever your state of mind is. Just the what's happening practice is a very powerful practice. So don't don't have to go to the most deeply spiritual form of inquiry, <laughs> but just go to the one that's really appropriate for where you're at. And uh, that range of those three or four practices, particularly the first two, should be really pretty accessible. To just ask what's happening, and then if something is predominant, to just say, okay, what's this? What is this about? What's going on? Those should be accessible uh, a fair amount of the time. And so I would invite you to do those in your formal practice, see if you can bring it out into your daily life. When you're driving away and you have a slow driver, remember my judgment story. <laughs> you know, just, okay, I'm impatient. Okay, what's this about? Let's listen. You know, and just, just if you want to take on that, and I'd love to uh, talk about what you find uh, next time we come. Because um, these, these are wonderful, really uh, liberating practices. So let's just sit quietly for 30 seconds or a minute and... Uh, maybe you can see, uh, can invite what was important about the morning for you. And it might be actually not at all related to inquiry. Something else might have occurred that was really important for you that you came to in your sitting or in hearing something. So let be whatever was important for you this morning be present. Particularly the one or two most important insights or sense of direction or intention And so let any intentions for the next period of time be present. And particularly how you might bring any work with inquiry into your life in the next 24 or 48 hours. It might be to set an intention to inquire in the morning or before certain activities. Maybe tie an inquiry string around your wrist. Some kind of, what's going to help you, if you want to do this, what's going to help you to inquire? And think of what you might do fairly soon, so you establish the intention more strongly. And so let's close by remembering that we practice not just for ourselves, but for others as well. And may the fruits of our morning together be shared widely with all with whom we come in contact. May we dedicate the value, the fruits, the benefits of our time together to the awakening and the healing of all beings. Thank you very much.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.